Hello. <laughs> Welcome to our uh, Wednesday night Bible study after this uh, long summer break. Hallelujah. And back. Back to our Wednesday nights. Um, I want to welcome our campuses joining with us, as, as well as uh, some people who are at, at home groups watching online, as well as other people who watch online all around the world. Uh, we are embarking upon a study of the New Testament. What we're going to do is uh, uh, we're going to skip the Gospels. We just went through the entire book of Matthew. It took us two years to do it. Uh, <clears throat> just because, you know, short times on Sunday mornings. But now we're going to, and we also finish up on Wednesday nights, the Old Testament. Now we're going to jump back into the New Testament. What we're going to do is we're going to start with the book of Acts, which comes right after the four Gospels and the book of Acts, which is the record of the church and uh, what they did, how it got started and stuff like that. And what we're going to do is as we go along, for example, we're, we're going to do it in order. When we get to the place in the book of Acts where... Uh, Paul actually wrote his letter for exactly to the Galatians. Then we're going to stop and we're going to go through the letter. And we're going to come back and continue in the book of Acts until where he wrote to the Corinthians. And then we're going to go see what he said to the Corinthians. So we're actually going to do the whole thing and uh, eventually wind up <laughs> in the book of Revelations. We'll see how well I do with that. But uh, so that's what we're going to do. The, the New Testament is really fascinating. The Bible in the Old Testament covers thousands of years of history big chunk. When you get to the New Testament, the entire thing, all of it was written in the span of 70 years, which is quite stunning. Uh, it is uh, the account, obviously, the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus, and then the apostles. We talk about the teaching of Jesus and of the apostles, which all tied together, which really gives us the directions of how to do faith as Christians and, and how we should be approaching. Most of the teachings in the New Testament are really easy to grasp and crystal clear. Uh, there are a few places where it's like, what? <laughs> and we'll go through all of that and do our best to try and uh, explain what it is. But generally speaking, the New Testament is a pretty easy to understand. About where it really loses people is they're trying to show the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If you don't understand much of the Old Testament, again, it's like, what are you talking about? And we're going to explain it to you. That's when they get into the weeds and start referring to Melchizedek and all this stuff, you know, from the Old Testament. But trying to show the transition. The biggest transition for them is to really get their heads around how Gentiles could come to faith, which, unless you're Jewish, listening to me right now, means you, all right? Because up until this point, there was the chosen people, the Jews. Everything was for the Jews. Jesus came to his own. He came to uh, minister to the Jews. In fact, one time, a lady who was not a Jew came to Jesus and asked for help. Do you remember what he said? It's, it sounds very cruel. He said, you know, it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs. Ow! That'll wreck your self-esteem, Right? Uh, because they really were focused on the Jewish people. Now, the lady had a great response. She said, true, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus went, wow, this lady has great faith. And he answered her request. I mean, it's really rather fascinating. But it's all built around from the time of uh, Abraham all the way through Jesus, all about the Jewish nation. 
Then something incredible happens. That was spoken of and prophesied in the Old Testament, but doesn't really become clear into the New Testament, and that is the gospel, the faith becomes available to everybody without having to convert first to Judaism. Anybody could have converted to faith, but you had to become a Jew, and you had to get circumcised if you were a guy, and you had to go through all the rules and rituals and stuff like that. It was a big deal, uh, and for them to finally get to the point where they uh, were able to, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, to come to the clarity that you could come to faith simply in Christ and not have to do all that. And there again, there's parts in the New Testament where they start wrestling with that, kind of loses people, but we'll just we'll make it real clear. All right? So uh, we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Acts is written by Luke, which is really kind of interesting because Luke, Luke is the one who wrote the gospel of Luke. Luke was a physician. He was not an apostle. And you start to think, well, it's really odd that, from our viewpoint, that why wasn't this written by one of the apostles? Because there's kind of this rule in the scriptures that you can't blow your own horn. That if you testify of yourself, it has no value. In fact, Jesus pointed that over and over again, that uh, I don't come to testify of myself. There's others that testify of me. It's interesting of the teachings of Jesus and how life-changing and amazing all of that was. He never wrote a word down. Others wrote it down. Others spoke. Others testified. We have the four Gospels all tying together to testify uh, to that. So when it switches now to the apostles, um, now they did write the letters, uh, you know, some of the letters to, to the church, but the history is now written by someone who was not an apostle, but again, a witness to what had happened. So we know it's Luke. Uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. What is the former book? It is found in the book of Luke. Let's jump to Luke real quick. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the, uh, the first were eyewitnesses. Now, he wasn't, which is a really interesting thing here. Um, and they were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So the book of Acts is actually book two of the writings of Luke. He's writing to this Greek Christian by the name of Theophilus. So he writes uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, which, again, now he's not even a witness of any of these things. Matthew, Mark, John were, the, the fourth one now. Luke is, again, just taking all the testimony of others, uh, again, pointing to who Jesus was and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So back to Acts chapter 1. So that's what he says in my former book, Theophilus. He's talking about the book of Luke. So that's who our author is here. Um, and you'll notice, uh, and I'll point this out when it transitions, but uh, by and large, Luke was not a witness to these events. He doesn't come to later. Once he comes in later into the story, you see a change in the way he talks. Instead of saying that they did this and they did this and Paul did that and Peter did this, then he starts saying we 
did this. Because that's at the point that Luke actually shows up. And he starts experiencing it from then on and then winds up writing Luke, the gospel, and the book of Acts. Okay, so he says, I told you all about it in the book of Luke, all about the gospel, Theophilus, and I, and I, and I explained to you how all these things, all the stuff that we'd heard, uh, all the detail, and I started from the beginning all the way up, he goes through the birth of Jesus, all the way up to, through the ministry of Jesus until the time Jesus was taken into heaven. The last thing he tells his disciples is, you know, you need to go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody, but don't go until you receive the Holy Spirit. So that's what he starts out here is reminding Theophilus, okay, this is what I wrote to you up until the time they're supposed to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, so verse three, after his sufferings, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, something that the apostles, the followers of Christ, had heard Jesus talk about. So he just reminds them as he's eating with them, stay in Jerusalem until this happens. They had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> they weren't given a lot of instructions, just that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them. All right? So, uh, verse 6, it says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're, they're all waiting for the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament where the Messiah comes and Israel is established and now he begins his reign for a thousand years and, you know, eventually then uh, the uh, eternity kicks in. But... Uh, he said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to, all, uh, to the ends of the earth. Now, you have to understand, when Jesus said, I will be back, it was like, I'm going for milk, you know? I'm going to quick trip or something. They had no idea. They literally thought... He's coming right back. So Lord, is this where we're going to set it? They had to worry about the times. Okay. So, and, and we'll see this as we go along. Uh, the early church conducted itself in a way that seems really odd uh, to the way we conduct church today. But again, when everybody thinks he's coming right back, it changes the way that you approach life, right? No way. No way. Did these guys expect that we'd still be here 2,000 years later? I mean, personally, I'm glad they waited, all right? Because we get in on this wonderful deal. At some point, it comes to an This will not go on forever. No way do they think it would last this long. I would have never guessed it would last this long. If it lasts another 2,000 years, I'll be shocked. Personally, I'm sure the world will destroy itself before that. In fact, the Bible says, except for the Lord stepping in, the whole thing would have fallen. You know, we were just totally imploded. So it would appear to me we're getting closer to that every day. But so anyway, this is the context. They're seeing him. And you have to understand, <laughs> they knew Jesus was Jesus and the Messiah. I mean, they didn't grasp it all. And they didn't even grasp the fact that he would die on the cross and raised from the dead, even though he said to them over and over again, boys, pay attention. We're going to Jerusalem, 
I will be betrayed, they will kill me, and then on the third day, I will rise from the dead. And they're like, phew! I mean, just how could you be so dumb? I don't know, you know, but I guess they were kind of dumb. I don't know. But uh, you can't even begin to understand it. But he said to them over, and then when he raised from the dead, they had a hard time believing what they were seeing. And then he would say to them, remember, I told you this would happen. They're all like, okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, they were, they were ugh, a little slow on the update from our point of view. I mean, I, but again, how would one even comprehend this? They probably didn't know what he was talking about. Who raises from the dead? Right? Generally speaking, when you die, that's a wrap. All right? We're done. So who comes back? And he, so he comes back, and they're seen, and their minds are just frying. Thomas, remember, he shows up late one time. They said, man, we just saw Jesus. Oh, yeah, right. And you think you have issues. These are the guys. Thomas was there. He experienced Jesus. He saw the miracles. He saw and heard stuff you and I would pay big money to see. And his response was, oh, come on. Not a chance. Unless I see him and can put my fingers in the holes of his hand and in his side, I died never. You guys are nuts. And of course, boom, Jesus shows up and says, hey, Thomas. <laughs> he freaks. And, uh, you know, follow oh, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says to Thomas, you know, you, you see and now you believe. Blessed are those, which be all of us, who have never seen, yet believe. Nobody here has seen the Lord. But yet we know him. All by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really quite incredible how all of this works. All right, so anyway. Uh, they're trying to say, you know, when is this, when are we wrapping this up? Is this it? Is this where we, you know, everything comes? He says, don't worry about it. Just remember, don't go anywhere until you get the Holy Spirit because you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, again, specifically, they are thinking they will be witnesses to the Jews. They, not in their wildest way. We'll get there. It's rather entertaining. But not in their wildest mind do they think you could get in on this unless you became Jewish first. This is the context. This is where we're at. Anyway, so after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Now, how cool is that? I mean, what would you do? It's like, wow. And then if that wasn't enough, uh, it says they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white ding, stood beside them. I don't know how these guys live. They go to die at one of these events. Stop jumping out of nowhere. All right? And then the angel says, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Seriously? I don't know. We don't normally see that down here. <laughs> Angels must think we're really stupid too, you know. What are you staring at? But the guy just floated away. Why are you still looking at this guy? The same Jesus who's been taken from you in heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him going to heaven. Again, they're thinking later this week, and they didn't know. They thought it was going to be very, very quickly. 
So then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. He said, don't go in there. So they, they, they came to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So that's where all this was happening. It's about a one-day walk, Sabbath day's walk from the city. Uh, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, son of James, not Judas Iscariot. They all joined together in con constantly in prayer, along with the women. So there's women there, and along those women are Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, Jesus' half-brothers, uh, which will mess with you if you're raised Catholic or whatever, but uh, the reality is, now, even Catholic theologians will admit this. See, what they think was that Joseph was married before Mary and had children and then married Mary later, and then, uh, you know, that's where these half-brothers and sisters come from. I don't think that's the case. I, you know, I think they had a family after. There was, the Bible says he wasn't supposed to have relations with her until Jesus was born. I assume, okay, here we go now. You know what I'm saying? So they had children. That's what I think happened. If you don't agree, check your medication. I really don't care, all right? Now, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. So there's 120 people there. They had been experiencing all this stuff for 40 days. I was like, wow, this has been a rush. And he said, now, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, the dirty rat who turned Jesus over, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. So he's one of the 12. We're supposed to have 12. This is an important thing. Now, with a payment, parenthetically, they talk about what happened to Judas. Uh, we know the gospel said they went out and hanged himself. Apparently, they throw in more detail here, which is kind of gross. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Jesus, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. Apparently, after hanging himself, at some point, he drops. His body bursts open, and all his intestines spilled out. Don't know why we need to hear that, but that's, that's what he's saying. His guts were everywhere. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. I bet it's pretty gross. So they called that field in their language Al-Kaldama, which is the field of blood. Just he stuck that in there, whatever. But anyway, Peter's still talking. For Peter said, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it and may another take his place of leadership. What's happening already now is the Old Testament prophecies start becoming clear to them. Up until this point, they were dumb as bricks. But now they start, so all of a sudden, they're up there praying, and they're waiting, and Jesus said, don't go anywhere, so we're not going anywhere, it's hanging, and suddenly he start, he's reading the Psalms, and he starts to see some of these prophecies that apply to their situation, that uh, his place is deserted. He says, well, he's got to be talking about Judas, because that's the only guy who's left, and then this verse that says, may another take his place of leadership. So they're thinking, all right, let's follow this. So therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we need a, we're lacking an apostle. We're one shy. We need one. So let's go get someone who's been there from the get-go. And it wasn't just the 12. There were all kinds of guys that were there, and several of them, I'm sure, were here out of that 120 uh, that were constantly experiencing all the same thing as, as the apostles. They just weren't apostles. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, uh, Barsabas, and uh, also known as Justice, 
and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs, which is, you know where. Uh, then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. So uh, Matthias becomes the 12th apostle. How did they make this decision? They drew lots. Someone has a long straw. Somebody has, it's kind of like, yeah, rocks, paper, scissors, you know. That's who's going to be the apostle. So that's what they prayed, they picked, and then they draw and sue whoever draw. I don't know if it was the long one or the short one, but whoever it was, it was Matthias, and now he's an apostle. Now, should we make our decisions that kind of way? No. Don't. Lord, I'm praying about, so what should I do? Let's draw lots. No. Don't do that, okay? You're not supposed to be. The reason they did that, because up until this point, what is missing? The Holy Spirit. So this is what they always did in the Old Testament. They were, they were just in the dark. Mind. There was no Holy Spirit guiding and leading them, giving any wisdom and insight. So they drew lots. And they prayed, God, help the right straw fall to the right guy. Uh, and um, now, there's some argument here about whether or not they should have done this at all. Uh, some would argue that they think he, they jumped the gun, that in fact, the 12th uh, apostle should have been Paul the apostle. All right? Who winds up writing the bulk of the New Testament? Uh, but we don't know that for sure. Maybe they might have been doing the right thing at the right time, and Matthias will be one of the 12 apostles when we get up there, and, and Paul might just be off to the side somewhere. I mean, you know, it's hard to comprehend, except that to whom much is given, much is required. And, and Paul was a really bad guy, killed Christians and everything else, and, you know, even though God used them mightily, I mean, I don't know. Who knows this stuff? God knows this stuff. I have no idea. And so that's what they do. So now they got the 12 again. They're back to 12. So they're praying. Now, when the day of Pentecost came, so Jesus took about 40 days. Uh, I forgot my math right. Another 10 days before the day of Pentecost. So it's less than two months, really. Um, and when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They're praying. They have no idea what's coming. They, they're completely clueless. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. That's pretty cool. Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And not just the 12, but all 120. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and what happened as a result, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the first thing. This is why we call it the Pentecostal experience or Pentecostalism or whatever. People who practice speaking in tongues. You say, Pastor, do you believe in speaking in tongues? I do. I do speak in tongues. I would encourage you to do so. I think it's quite lovely. But uh, that's a whole other sermon. And check with Pastor Lathan. He does teachings about this all the time. Do you have to speak in tongues to come to this church? You do not. If you don't want to speak in tongues, that's your own business. If you don't believe you're supposed to speak in tongues, that's fine. We will respect and honor that. Nobody shoves that around here. Nobody runs around in our church speaking in tongues and going nuts, which is common to Pentecostal churches. <laughs> okay? But we believe the whole Bible. We still think that this is uh, applicable today. And we'll get into this as we go mildly. Again, we're not here to push that. Uh, it is a, a wonderful, empowering experience. We'll talk more about it. Trust me, as we go through the New Testament, there's a lot to say on the issue. So anyway, this is what happens. They start speaking in tongues. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why? They're all there for the, 
face of Pentecost. They're coming from all over the world. Uh, they were very, you know, in the Middle East, these people always go on these, you know, pilgrimages and stuff like that. So they're all in town. And now when they heard the sound, what sound? The sound of a mushy, rushing, a mushing, <laughs> a rushing mighty wind. Why was the rushing mighty wind? I've no idea. But it was loud. I mean, really loud. Enough that people everywhere were like, what the heck is that? So they all come running to hear this. What was that? I mean, all this noise and stuff like that. And they see these guys all praying. I don't know if they went up to the room, if these guys all came out of the room. I presume it must have come out of the room. So who knows? It doesn't tell us. We don't know. All they know is when they show up, so they heard this, the crowd came together in bewilderment, bewilderment, because then they each heard them in their own tongue, being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? And he goes through it and talks about all the different languages that were there. And amazed and perplexed, verse 12, they asked one another, what does this mean? What is this? And I think the guys who were experiencing it, like, wow, what a rush this has got to be. I'm not sure they quite understood what was going on. It said, then verse 13, but however, some made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Notice these guys were plastered. All right, this, you know, this is nuts. So then Peter stood up with the 11 and raised his voice. Now this is the guy who 50 days earlier was scared. He's afraid. He denies Jesus three times in that one night. Weeps bitterly as a result of it. I mean, they, and they're all hiding. All of a sudden, the man is transformed. He is filled with a boldness that wasn't there before. We attribute that to the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit being in uh, Peter. So Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully, escuchame, for the Puerto Ricans on the front row. <laughs> Listen to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose it's only nine in the morning. Apparently, Peter had never been to Wisconsin. <laughs> but that's beside the point. They can't be drunk, it's too early. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he starts quoting from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. You can jump back and read it, but he quotes it here. Joel had prophesied that in the last days, something incredible would happen. They knew he'd spoken, but they didn't know when. They didn't understand, you know, because a lot of these prophecies don't really become clear until when they start to happen, which is going to happen you know, as the book of Revelations is fulfilled before our eyes before here and stuff like that. That's why I don't get real dogmatic on the book of Revelation. People who tell you, well, I know exactly what everything in the book of Revelation means is probably delusional at some level. There's no way they can know. They did give their best guess, but they're not going to know until they know. So anyway, they knew that Joel said prophetically that someday the Spirit of God would fall on everybody. Now, this is really radical because up to that time, that wasn't the case. If you were like Elijah, the spirit fell on you. If you were uh, Isaiah, the spirit fell on you. If you were one of these cool prophets or David or something, you know, this, in over thousands of years, there's a handful of people that the spirit of God came on and great, did great things, you know? And, uh, and sometimes the spirit of God fell on, really, people you wouldn't even expect to fall on, like, you know, Samson, who was a fornicating little snot. He was a bad guy. He really hated bad, but yet the Spirit of God would fall on him and boom, would do things. 
But they were all thought these were special people. Very special. Indeed, they were. That the Spirit of God will fall on. But now he prophesies and says, someday there's a day coming where it'll fall on everybody. And even the most humble of people, everyday people, servants, even women, which is what we're about to read, which is really radical to these guys. They, they saw this in the Old Testament, and now Peter gets up and says, this is it. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Haven't started doing that yet. I guess I'm not old yet. <laughs> Spiritual dreams are very cool. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out on my spirit in those days. Now, we read that. We don't think anything of it. This is radical because women were not really included in stuff. Now, even to this day, if I'm correct, in very strict Jewish uh, worship services, uh, the men are allowed in, but the women have to stay behind the gate. I mean, just women were like second-class citizens. They counted women along with the chickens and the frogs and stuff like that. Well, not about frogs, I don't know, <laughs> but chickens and, and whatever. So that's why in the, in the Gospels they said, how many people? There were 5,000 men, including women and children, which undoubtedly... And it is a significant amount considering the children. These people seemed to have them in bunches back then. So, but they didn't count them. Whenever we'd talk about how many things, they would all talk about how many men. It was very men. Anybody who, because some of the misquotes and twisting of what Paul the Apostle said, which we will get there. We're going through the New Testament. We're going to talk about all of it. But some people who come along and say that Christianity oppresses women, they're delusional. Christianity is the only religion in the world that came and set women free and started talking about them in the same context, in the same place, in the same value uh, as men, which was very radical in this context. So he's talking about even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. He's quoting Joel here. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the, great, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, what uh, Joel is prophesying, and they would do this when they would prophesy, oftentimes they would speak of things, but in very compressed time frames. What he just talked about was uh, the last 2,000 years and eventually when all this comes to an end in that one setting, okay? Um, it's a great analogy I saw once is like, you know, uh, you know, you got the mountaintops and the valleys and the mountaintops and the valleys and the mountaintops and the valleys. This would be a really long trip. But if you stand on one tourist and you look across, you just see the mountaintops. And that's what these prophets would do. They'd see points in time. That's why these guys all expected all of this to wrap up. Bada bing, bada boom. Jesus left. He's coming back. He's getting some milk. I don't know what he's doing, but he's going to come back. This is going to be awesome. And all of this comes to an end. So they're all talking about in the same context. So all this stuff's going to happen. And it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved which was prophetically speaking, which again was a little radical. What do you mean everyone who calls upon it? You know, yeah, everyone, everyone. They still haven't grasped what the everyone is yet, which includes you and me and all the other non-Jewish believers over the last 2,000 years. So they're about to get a shock about what this everyone means. So anyway, he says preaching. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, 
and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You will see that, we'll see this over and over again as they're preaching. They went out of their way to say how God treated Jesus and how you treated him, which, wow, you know, it was pretty accusatory and I think intentionally so. Now, how many of these guys were actually here for that? I don't know. Again, they're here for Pentecost. It's been 50 days. A lot of them were probably here back then. I mean, it's not like they flew in on Delta, you know, for the weekend and took off. I mean, they would come, you know, however long it would take them to get there from wherever the world, and they'd gather for long periods of time to experience all this stuff. So a lot of these guys were there. Maybe some of the very ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. All right? So he talks about how God treated him, but then how you treated him. But in verse 24, he says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And he starts quoting again from the Old Testament. David in the Psalm said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. What he's doing is showing what that David was talking about is Jesus. He wouldn't stay in the grave. God would raise him. His body wouldn't rot. He was just going to be there for a short time. He says, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me in the, with joy in, the, in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here. So he wasn't talking about himself. You're not going to let my body see decay. His body's long decayed a long time ago. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, I tell, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, now, now it's a different ballgame. They heard Jesus talk, but some would believe, but relatively small, apparently. In the end, many were blown away. But now the convincing power of the Holy Spirit is in the earth, and they are witnesses to this, and they're experiencing this. And now when he speaks, all these guys are cut to the heart, and they understand the truth of what they're saying. Man, what do we do? How do we fix this? We're a mess. And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, in the words that Luke spares us here, <laughs> there's a couple of places if he's going this, I wish he would have spared us as well. He goes in a great deal of, of some of these sermons, and we'll read them. But uh, that's as much as he tells us. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message and were baptized, those those who accepted his message and were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So 3,000 people got converted from his first sermon. Not bad. Okay. 
So now all of a sudden, boom, you go from 120 Christians in Jerusalem, only those that were gathered. There might have been others. We don't know. But boom, now we've got 3,000. And that's a bunch of people. And it's a big statement. Uh, now I want to back up a little bit uh, to, to verse uh, 38. What do you got to do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? What does he say? Repent and be baptized. Now, this is something, as we go through the New Testament, I want you to see oftentimes what they said you had to do to be saved. And you have to understand, they didn't, like he said, with many other words, they don't always record everything that uh, some of these guys said. But as you read the scriptures that were written over these 70 70 years, you get a sense of what you have to do to truly know Christ. Now, this is something that oftentimes churches, and churches have done this for a long, long time, is they tend to lock in to one of those descriptions of what you need to do to be saved. And they focus on that and that's all they care about. Uh, Two, I think the detriment of many people. Evangelical Christians are as guilty as mainline denominations in that regard. For example, there is a passage, I believe it's Peter who says that you are saved through baptism. Anybody who was raised as a Catholic or a Lutheran or any of these hardcore deals knows that's what they teach. You're saved through baptism. They lock onto that because that's what the Bible says in one place, okay? Now, evangelical Christians lock onto the one, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. And evangelical Christians have spent hundreds of millions of dollars just in the last 50 years alone having big rallies and TV shows and everything that we possibly can, more than 50 years, but just to get people to say a prayer. Because if you'll just believe and just say this, you'll be saved. How many times have you heard a preacher say that? Now, we pray with people every Sunday, a prayer, as just the starting point to faith because this helps people start on their path. But you'll notice, we never pronounce to anybody because they've done that, that they're saved. You'll notice you don't hear that from us. Why? Because we don't know that just because they said it, they're saved at all. Because it's, we, you have to do it all. Everybody say all. You gotta do it all. If you add them all together, maybe when we'll get done, we'll just make a list of all the things you have to be saved. The Bible says you need to repent, you need to be baptized, you need to believe, you need to confess, you need to continue in the faith, you have to endure until the end. What do you have to do to be saved? All of the above. That's what we teach and what we believe. I don't buy this thing. You know how many people in America have repeated a prayer and are convinced they're saved and they're no more saved than the man in the moon. They still live like hell. They're still as bitter and angry. It's one of the main reasons that we have such a hard time convincing just adult people to get baptized after they come to faith. Well, how do you do that? Why? Because we said all you gotta do is pray the prayer. No, you need to be, if you have, if you li- listen to me, all you listen to me. If you pray the prayer and come to faith in Jesus, you need to get baptized. Oh, I don't want to. I don't care. Okay? You need to do it. Well, I don't want my hair wet. Oh, man, some of the excuses people come up with is amazing. So I don't want to be in that pool after people have been in there. Well, line up for number one. <laughs> There's always a way around this stuff. 
But you will notice that what must I do to be saved, they kind of, the descriptions vary. It's interesting here, he doesn't say anything about believing. What do you gotta be? Repent and be baptized. So, so there's people who think, well, if you just do this, that, but you've got to take it all in context. You've got to listen to everything they taught. You need to do it all. Don't, and, I, and I still hear it. People who think, oh, man, that brings somebody to church and think, oh, man, if I can just get, oh, I hope, I'm listening, I hope they said that prayer. Oh, because oh, if they said that, they're saved. Maybe. You don't know. One way to find out, you will know them by their fruits. If they start living a changed life, praise God. You know? But, uh, don't be so quick to just pronounce people that they're saved because they repeat a prayer after you. There are sometimes people who repeat prayers after you just to get away from you. <laughs> I've had that happen. You ever have that happen? You're talking to somebody, you want to pray? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, okay, blah, 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 and they get out of there. You know. <laughs> I remember when we first saved, we used to say, because we're just a bunch of hippies that got saved. We said, man, get high on Jesus. You guys remember that? Just get high on Jesus, man. You get so high on Jesus. You know, wow. And they're talking to this one guy. He says, really? And he says, yes. Yeah. Well, how do you do it? Says, oh, man, great. Let's get down and pray. So he gets down on his knees, and he repeats the prayer. And he's going, and we're thinking, this is so cool. He's getting saved. Finally, he goes, I don't feel anything yet. I'm thinking, oh, Lord, he's literally trying to get high. It's like this is quick acid, right? Because that's what we said. You can get High on Jesus, which clearly then I stopped saying that after that. <laughs> All right, so continue on. So all three thought, boom, the birth of Christianity, the church starts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we're going to do as we go through this. That's why we're doing this. We're going to listen to the apostles' teaching. And to fellowship, they got together, they spent time with each other, breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Well, how cool is that? What were they doing? I don't know. Is that just people getting healed? Is it, you know, were they, you know, there's not much food today, we just got one chicken, let's pray. Now they fed everybody from the one chicken? I mean, I don't know. They were doing stuff that, wow, is this amazing, incredible stuff. Now, it says all the believers were together and had everything in common. So they basically lived instantaneously in one big commune. They were the first communists. <laughs> Literally. Uh, in fact, it sounds very communistic here as you read it. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Everybody just started selling everything they had. All hanging out in the one big, fat, happy commune which at one point didn't get very happy, which we'll find because they started fighting a little bit later down the road. Human nature, can't imagine. But every day, they, now why would they do that? Oh, we don't need anything. Why? Because Jesus is coming right back. At some point, they're thinking, wow, this is taking a long time. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't such a good plan, Okay. Uh, so that's literally why they're doing this. I mean, they're, they're, they think it's going to really happen quick. Every day they continued to meet together in the courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So all kinds of people. This thing is growing exponentially. Uh, and we would assume by the thousands. Um, I'm sure it's getting the attention of the Jewish leaders. They didn't really seem to have much of a problem in the beginning 
with it. Uh, they really viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism. In fact, we'll see that. I mean, many people, the Romans in particular, considered Christianity a Jewish sect, you know, kind of like a Christian denomination. You know, it was like a denomination. You got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, you got the Christians. They're all Jews. And there's how this thing. So they're all still Jews. They're all still going to the temple. They're acting like Jews, behaving like Jews, following all the rules of Jews, everything else. But now they're putting their faith in Jesus. Now the pressure is very embarrassing for those leaders who had Jesus crucified. I mean, this is humiliating and it's creating some pressure, which we're going to see. That's going to start building and boom, you know, the, we're going to have a bit of an explosion here uh, that uh, starts really affecting the church in some pretty strong ways. But uh, all that happens in this beginning is all of a sudden, after when the Holy Spirit shows up, they start experiencing God powerfully on the inside. Wow, everything changes. Where they were a group on the run, now they begin to become a group that dominates. Until the kettle gets so much pressure and boom, these guys start coming after them. They start persecuting Christians. It starts scattering them everywhere, which a lot of people believe they talk or they don't know, but they say they, they believe maybe the reason God allowed that to happen was because they failed to do what Jesus had told them, right? You'll start in Jerusalem, and then go to Judea and Samaria and the other parts of the earth. Well, they weren't going anywhere. They're hanging out in Jerusalem. Why would you go? We're having a blast. This is awesome. We're seeing miracles. People are getting saved by the thousands. We own this town. This is awesome. And then the persecution comes, and they scatter. I don't think that's really the reason the persecution came. Jesus said they would hate you, and that's true to this day. And at some point, I just think the natural thing is the world, the minute the world gets threatened by Christians, and they do, uh, they begin to strike back and they start coming at us. Fortunately, we live in a country where that's very, very muted, but even at a small level, that's uh, at play uh, in the United States. So now when we get to chapter three, we start seeing some, some really cool miracles. And we're gonna start talking about the context of miracles and why don't we see as much miracles today as they did back then? Certainly not in this country. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But we'll start to experience uh, what they, we'll start to see what they experienced and it starts to have a massive uh, impact on them. Uh, the, the heat comes on, you know, the persecution starts to come. Uh, the, the, the uh, what do you call it? The, the commune grows. <laughs> I, I don't think the commune, by chapter six, the commune starts fighting with each other. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure exactly where it hits, but where, you know, they start spreading us. Chapter eight, the chapter eight, before they start scattering. Ah! Which was good because they were irritating each other anyway by that time. So, uh, but uh, yet it's very, very powerful and it's an amazing stuff. And like I said, as we get to the certain points where all these other epistles come in, we'll stop and we'll go to that, all right? So that's our start. And we'll pick it up chapter three next week. All right, see you then. Amen. God bless you.